I want to take you back in time, back in history, but not to a different century, not that long ago. It's only a few years back, maybe a decade or so. And you will remember early in um, 2000s, there was so much optimism in this world. Earlier, the Berlin Wall had come down after peaceful demonstrations. And how remarkable was that? The Cold War had come to an end, the Soviet Union was no more, and more and more experts were telling us that liberalism was here to stay, and this was the triumph of liberal democracy. That fascism had lost, that communism had lost, but democracy had won once and forever. And so in both academia and media, article after article after article was published predicting that now, thanks to new technologies and the flow of ideas and goods and trade and capital and the movement of peoples, we were all going to become interconnected. It was all going to be like a big global village, happy and connected and blue, liberal blue, in our beautiful village, a bit like the Smurfs, you know? And the experts who made these predictions, and these were smart people, they also assumed that nationalism was going to lose its ugly edge, that religious fundamentalism was slowly but surely going to disappear. And the tide of progress was going to be so strong that even those countries that were lagging behind were going to feel compelled to move on, move forward, and catch up with the rest of the modern world. So that was the mood back then. Now, we Turkish people, we're not very good at optimism. Actually, there are two things we don't do in Turkey. One is optimism, and the other one is irony. And I think if you take a map of Europe and you trace the river Danube with your finger from one end to the other end, so if you start in Germany and you keep moving and moving towards the Black Sea, you will realize that as your finger keeps moving, the level of optimism is going to drop more and more and more. So much so that by the time you reach Romania and Hungary and Bulgaria and Turkey, there will be a, optimism will be in short supply. Actually, one of my favorite Romanian, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, the brilliant Romanian thinker, Emil Cioran, used to say, it is not worth the bother of killing yourself, since you always kill yourself too late. So that should give you an idea about our level of optimism, you know, in my part of the world. But the funny thing is, once upon a time, even we were optimistic. You know, even there was optimism in my part of the world. But of course, back then, the biggest optimists were the tech optimists. They were the ones who were telling us that now, take, thanks to these new digital platforms, each and every one of us was going to have a voice. We would be able to express our opinion, 
And these new platforms were going to be decentralized. They were going to be harmonious, all-embracing, egalitarian. And they were going to help us to move beyond borders, national, ethnic, religious, class borders, and gender boundaries as well. And there would be an amazing diversity too. And while they were saying this, the Silicon Valley itself was not a very diverse place, and it still isn't, but that didn't matter. Even today, when you look at the number of people who are working actually in Silicon Valley, only 3% of them are African-Americans, only 1% Latinas. There is no diversity in Silicon Valley. There is no gender equality in Silicon Valley. But that didn't matter because they were selling us a dream. They told us they loved equality. They told us they loved diversity. And that was the dream we needed to hear. And we bought that dream. And perhaps that dream was nowhere more passionately and widely applied than in analysis about the Middle East. You will remember when there were uprisings in Iran, they were called the Twitter revolution. And when the Gezi resistance, the remarkable Gezi resistance happened in Istanbul and spread all over Turkey, understandably, the social media played a very progressive role in a country where the mainstream media was pretending as if nothing was happening because it was so badly and widely censored and silenced. And of course, before that, when the Arab Spring happened, remember the very beginning of Arab Spring, Again, there was so much expectations, high hopes, about how social media was going to play a progressive role. So much so that a young Egyptian couple named their newborn baby daughter Facebook. So as I'm speaking to you right now, there's a young girl in Egypt, a teenager, whose name is Facebook, and whose name and whose presence symbolizes the optimism of a bygone era that we have now lost. So fast forward to today's uncertainties, I think the pendulum has swung to the opposite end. And now we are living in the age of anxiety. It's almost like an existential angst. It's the age of fear, anger, there's a lot of anger, resentment, frustration. And ours, I believe, is an age in which negative emotions guide and misguide politics. We do not trust politics and politicians, why should we? But at the same time, we don't trust media, which is very troubling, because we need proper journalism now more than ever before. And on the other hand, we don't trust the banking industry, which is understandable after the financial crisis. We are the ones, people are the ones who are suffering the consequences of that. But the problem is, even though the lack of trust is so understandable, the reasons for that. When people stop feeling any trust in any institution whatsoever, they start to look for alternatives. And sometimes those alternatives, oftentimes those alternatives, are not the right alternative. So when you look at the research that's being carried out in recent years, in Germany, in the US, and in this very country, in the UK, the number of young people who are moving towards radical left and radical right has doubled. The number of young people who are moving towards radical left and radical right in Sweden has tripled. And this is happening in a country that was until recently regarded as the bastion of social democracy.
And I think, alarmingly, the number of people who believe that we need so-called strong leaders in order to feel secure, that number is also increasing. Again, the number of people who are following in America far-right accounts, Twitter accounts, in the last five years has increased by 600%. In 2017, Freedom House published their report and at first glance, it seemed like there was a bit of good news because 35 countries had made progress. But the same report also said that 71 countries, twice as many, had been going backwards and had been going backwards very fast. And there is no doubt that my motherland, Turkey, is one of those 71 countries. So much so that today, Turkey has become the world's biggest jailer for journalists, of journalists, surpassing even China's sad records. Every segment of the civil society, from academia to media, has been crushed, silenced, and shuttered. And if it is true that what has happened in Turkey can happen in other parts of the world, from Brazil to Hungary, from Poland to Venezuela to the Philippines, or to the US, if it can even happen here, and if it is true that no country is inoculated against anti-democratic tendencies, no country is immune, then I believe we women should be much more worried about what's happening than men. Because when countries go backwards and when they tumble into nationalism, authoritarianism, populism, tribalism, and religious fundamentalism, women and minorities are the first ones to lose their rights. So this is where we are right now. The internet that was supposed to connect us has, be has been dividing us. The digital technologies that were supposed to help us to democratize have been helping extremism. Politics has become incredibly toxic and tribalistic. It almost feels like a zero-sum game, and we're losing this culture of coexistence. And even in this country, I'm amazed to see the phrase, the enemies of the people, being used about people who speak critically about the status quo or how things are going. They can be labeled as traitors. And I, and I wince when I see that because I recognize that label from my own motherland. So I also have to maybe tell you, I wasn't planning to come here with a, with a gloomy talk. You know, I had a... I had a more cheerful talk in mind when I first accepted this invitation. But then New Zealand happened. And 50 people were killed, and children, and babies, as young as three years old, in a sacred space while praying. And how can we forget that? And of course, before the terrorist attack on a mosque in New Zealand, Pittsburgh happened, the Tree of Life synagogue. And again, innocent people in a sacred space were slaughtered. And how can we forget that? And before that, remember, African-American Methodist Church was attacked. And again, people were killed. How can we forget that? And remember the Sikh temple that was attacked. How can we forget that? So it is almost as if this feeling of helplessness and anxiety, the worry we feel, about the future of our democracies and how fast things are moving. You know, it makes us feel so, so hopeless at times.
that I think even Emil Cioran, even the Romanian thinker Cioran, would be surprised if he saw our level of pessimism today had he been alive. And I'm sharing these political facts with you, not despite the fact that I'm a fiction writer, but precisely because I'm a fiction writer, because I'm a storyteller. And like all writers, all storytellers, I am very interested in stories. I chase stories, I imagine stories, I love stories. But I realized over the years that as much as I love stories, I'm also very drawn to silences, the things we cannot talk about easily or we don't talk about, taboos, political, sexual, cultural taboos. So there's this desire in me to try to make the invisible a bit more visible, to try to bring the periphery a bit closer to the center and maybe say, can we talk about this? It matters. And, I have, and I'm becoming more and more, more worried about these silences and the forgettings because they seem to spread so fast east and west. It also worries me because when I read the, the testimonies of the people who have survived the worst atrocities in human history, all civil wars, genocides, the Holocaust, these people who have survived, they're all telling us something very similar. They say the opposite of goodness is not necessarily badness. The opposite of kindness is not necessarily wickedness. They say bad things happen not because people are bad. Of course there are bad people, but that doesn't explain how come bad things happen. So they want us to think about what exactly is the opposite of goodness. And strikingly, they say, in fact, the opposite of goodness is numbness. It's the moment we become numb, desensitized, indifferent. And that is a very dangerous threshold because we stop feeling. And the moment we stop feeling, we stop caring. Then what happened in New Zealand is just miles away. What happened in Pittsburgh is someone else's pain. What happened in a Methodist church is someone else's story. We stop feeling connected. And I think once you have that, once you surpass that threshold, we enter a very dangerous zone. And it's also a very fertile soil because upon that fertile soil, you can sow the seeds of all kinds of racism, sexism, discrimination, because that is how you can dehumanize the other. And I think that's why stories matter today because they try to rehumanize those people who have been dehumanized. So I started with pessimism. Actually, I started with optimism, and then I moved to pessimism. But I think we've seen, now we have enough experience to know that an extreme amount of optimism is no good. And we need a healthy dose of pessimism. But at the same time, an extreme amount of pessimism is also dangerous because it makes us retreat into our zones and it makes us numb and it pulls us down and it lowers our energy. So we need a healthy dose of optimism too. And where do we find that? How do we find that in today's world? As I want to bring this to an end, I want to leave you with a metaphor, with a saying that Antonio Gramsci was using once upon a time. He was talking about the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will optimism of the heart. And I really think it's a good motto for our times because we have 
We need the pessimism of the intellect when there is so much darkness happening all around us. But then we need the optimism of the heart as well. And the only way to get that kind of optimism is by connecting with each other and by drawing that strength and drawing that inspiration from our fellow human beings. Thank you.